Hi there, I'm David Harvey, and I'm here with John Andrews, and this is the Two Techs Podcast. In this podcast, we're two friends in two different countries, here with you every two weeks talking about two different texts from the Bible. In this season, as we enter our second year of podcasting together, we step beyond the stories of Jesus in the Gospels and into the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts is a series of stories and events from the early church when they encounter the disrupting presence of the Holy Spirit. So, John, do we want to dig a little deeper into Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two? <laughs> we gave the we gave the sort of ten thousand meter overview <laughs> in our last episode. Now let's check his sources and uh, and explore the bits of the Old Testament that he uses. Indeed, yes, because it, it's it's funny when you look at his sermon, there there are these quite serious quotations from the biblical text. Mm-hmm. And then his explanations or lead up to those quotes in between. And his his sort of in-between bits are are fairly meaty, but he makes mm-hmm. some serious points off the back of some of the Old Testament passages he uses. Mm-hmm. And of course, what seems to be interesting is he he uses these passages in slightly different ways. He seems to mm-hmm. He seems to have a, an interesting little hermeneutic around some of that, So, but makes a very powerful point from the Tanakh. And as far as I can see, he sort of directly quotes Tanakh at least three times and probably indirectly. There's a couple of other little nuances yes. and quotes in there that are worthy of consideration. So it's a serious, it's a serious sermon in terms of Tanakh weight. That he puts yes. on that, and and so so let's give this some analysis in this episode. And I often feel, I often like to think about um, Peter, this young fisherman from Nazareth, and used to thinking he was going to spend his life floating around the Sea of Galilee looking for fish, and here we are, two thousand years later, analyzing his rhetoric of his first sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that nobody has a recording of my first sermon. That's all I can say. Me too, me too, me too. Absolutely, absolutely. Which, of course, may undo everything we said in the last episode, which was that actually what's really important is is whether it talked about Jesus or not. It did, it did. So, Theo, why don't I read the first quotation that Peter quotes, which is kind of the biggest one, isn't it? And perhaps the Mm. one that we most remember when we think about Peter's mm. sermon. So so I'll read this for us just now, John, and then let's let's explore why Peter jumps straight to the prophet Joel to sort of say mm. this is is that. Um, so in Acts chapter two, verse 17, we hear Peter quoting directly from Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's that mm. first. That's that first piece, isn't it? Yeah, 
And I, and I, I, I love Peter's sort of introduction. This is that. I mean, it's quite literally how it, how it reads, isn't it, in the text? Mm-hmm. This is that. So he's, he's making a direct connection to what they are observing in this outpouring of the Spirit, speak, people speaking in different languages, the, the apparent, perhaps, dynamic expressions and behaviours, and maybe even some behaviours that have caused some people in the crowd to think, hold on, these boys have already been in the pub having a few drinks. <laughs> so, which is, is really just uh, allows you to see that there's some serious stuff going on there. But I love this. Peter is absolutely confident that what you're seeing has been spoken of by the prophet Joel and he makes mm-hmm. the connection and, and and one of the interesting things that I've observed is he doesn't he doesn't attempt to explain the prophecy mm-hmm. he just says this is that it's interesting yes. I, I think when we get to the other text the Psalms when he he, he gives a wee bit more explanation he leans in a little yes. bit more he almost gives a wee bit of an exposition when it comes to the Joel text he sort of doesn't he just says this is that so, as if he thinks it's sort of self-explanatory, almost. Absolutely, absolutely, and or or that that perhaps in an attempt to explain some of the detail of Joel's text, that will it will lead people away from the main point, which is the outpouring mm. of the Spirit within these dynamic eschatological events that are happening right in front of their eyes. Mm. But it's it is it is fascinating. I mean, when you look at the original Joel prophecy. It, it begins with afterwards, so so that sort of the context of the of the Joel prophecy is that you, you've got a, a people that are are coming out of a of a, a massive period of being ravaged and mm. difficulty and hardship, and there's this promised restoration off the back of of repentance and and sort of the day of the Lord coming, mm-hmm. and Peter is is grabbing that idea and saying, okay. The we are now in these last days. This is this is now what Joel prophesied would happen is now beginning. We are we are experiencing and seeing this restoration through the power of the Spirit. A restoration that would come to Israel and and to the wider context. And he seems to be seeing this as really linking it to the dawn of of almost the messianic age this is this is now the working of messiah in a new community empowered by the holy spirit this is that so it it is really fascinating he doesn't make any attempt to explain he just makes the two things connected which mm. which should help us a little bit because there's some stuff in that prophecy which are hard it's hard to explain and the fact yes. that Peter doesn't <laughs> explain it means, well, it sometimes suggests to me that maybe I don't need to worry about explaining it. All yes. he's interested in is making some serious connections to the outpouring of the Spirit promised by Joel and what's happening right now. And the fact that this is an indicator that we are in the last days, the days of Messiah and the days of this new community, an inclusive mm-hmm. and dynamic community. That makes sense. To- totally, totally makes sense. And, and I even love that little comment of sometimes with prophetic literature, we need to be careful of trying to overinterpret it. Right? If, if you start trying to figure out where are the signs of blood, fire and smoky mist, it often gets into the, the realm of the ridiculous if you're not if you're not careful. And and we've all heard that happen. I'm sure many of us have heard sermons where somebody's tried to tie a piece of prophecy down to a very particular moment and in doing mm. so manages to miss the point. There's two things that I see happening in the New Testament when it comes to quoting the Old Testament. And I'm curious 
which one you think is happening here. So we've talked in two texts before, for example, about Jesus' quotation from Isaiah, where he stops short before the part about vengeance. And, and, and quite clearly, the listeners pick up on the fact that, oh, you stopped short there on purpose. And it's like, that, that's, that's quite controversial. There are other, so there's times where we need to pay attention to where the text stops because it's intentional. There are other times, I think, when the Old Testament is quoted where the quotation serves almost as a mnemonic for the rest of the text. So, for example, Jesus makes the comment once, the poor you will always have amongst you, right? Which has been used by many people to say, well, don't worry so much about doing justice and works for the poor. But, of course, I think when Jesus says that, he's expecting you to know the rest of the quotation, which is the, the poor you will always have amongst you, so live with an open hand amongst them, right? And so so Jesus is actually showing us to point back to the text. And, and I think what Peter's doing in Joel 2 by quoting this part of Joel 2, is the second approach Mm. that don't look at, oh, all the stuff he's not quoted is therefore to be ignored. Actually, I think Peter is reminding them not just of this section of Joel 2, but perhaps even all of Joel, but definitely the rest of chapter 2 of Joel, where the language is, is about restoration and deliverance and God doing something new amongst people and people who felt abandoned are now told to not be abandoned. So, I mean, I'm I'm curious if you agree with me on that, but I, I can't help but see what Jesus is doing, not just as a fulfillment of the bit that Peter quotes, but actually that whole passage of Joel 2. Absolutely. I, I, I would go with that. And, and I think that helps you actually hold in tension some of the imagery within the direct quote from Peter that he Mm. doesn't seem to explain because it's the trajectory of the passage. It's the drive and context of uh, the, the, the day of the Lord that will bring restoration, healing, return, increase to a people that have been ravaged by this this literally or metaphorically, this plague of locusts that has ravaged their world. And and there's a promise of restoration within that. And I think if you understand the quote within that wider context, then Peter is positioning the outpouring of the Spirit as part of that. Well, not just part of, I would say essential part of that restorative process that 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 something is going is about to be restored, can I say, to Israel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Israel of God, something is about to be restored. If they will open up their hearts, something will come to them that can restore years that have been ravaged. So remember, we are we are in in the end of the Gospels, moving into in our Bible, the Book of Acts, uh, and that that period between the end of the Tanakh, the end of the Old Testament, uh, in our Bible, Malachi, looking forward to Messiah or in the Jewish Bible Chronicles, and in, and in this hope of Matthew, you've had this 400-year period of drought, of mm. of virtual ravage context. I mean, a, a nation that has been eaten by the locust. And, and I think this mm. outpouring of the Spirit is a sign of a potential restorative role of the Spirit to them. And if you look at what, what really helps here is... If you look at Peter's final quote from Joel, he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you go to Joel 
on this. It goes on to say, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, Mm -hmm. as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So you get this beautiful idea that it's not just those who call on the name of the Lord, but the the ones the Lord is calling. Mm. And and where's that salvation process? Where's that restorative process yes. located? But yes. in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, where's this happening? It's happening right at the epicenter of that, that moment. So yes. I think that there's a gorgeous allusion there to the geographic position of this outpouring of the Spirit and its potential impact. And that's not lost on anyone who knows the Joel prophecy, that this is Which located is likely in Mount Zion. everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's a, and I think it's always, oh, I mean, I know we say this a lot, but it's always important to realize how literate the average Jewish person in the first century was to these texts. Yes. So this is, and even if you push before it, though, it's interesting, John, and we'll talk about this in our next episode, but the response of the people, right? Mm. Well, what should we do then? And Peter's response is, well, you have, have to repent. You have to turn around, right? Which is really interesting. Again, if if you've got your text open in Joel chapter 2, look at the lead in to P- the bit that Peter quotes. So what comes before the bit that Peter quotes? In, J- in Joel 2.12, even now declares the Lord, return to me, the beautiful Hebrew word, shu. So turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. And shuv, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? And this, I love this text. And, and some of the English translations obscure this slightly. But Joel then says, who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. But in the Hebrew, it's that word shuv again, isn't it? So, 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 so the prophet says, listen, shuv to God. Return to God, people. Like shuv to the Lord your God. Because who knows? He may shuv and, <laughs> and, and turn to us. Which, of course, now we're beginning to see, oh, this is exactly what he does. But again, notice then... What is the response to God's returning, God's turning around towards us, is to blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, consecrate the people, right? So the people say to Peter, what should we do? Peter says, shuv, right? Well, he doesn't, I mean, we don't know what he says exactly because we're reading a Greek translation, but he uses the Greek word for turnaround. So, and baptize yourself, a consecration. So I think the whole thing is being framed by this prophetic almost narrative. It's almost like Joel is being read as the guidebook as to how we stay within what God is doing in this space. You you see what I'm saying there? Oh, so beautiful. Absolutely. And in fact, coincidentally, and sort of sideways on this slightly, I don't want to go somewhere we don't want to go. But (laughs) but I've been doing a little bit of work in the book of Jonah. And Mm -hmm. that little passage you've just read from Joel, if you set that on top of the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four of Jonah, it is almost identical. Mm-hmm. So the king says, the king of Nineveh says, who knows, he says, that God may relent. Now, the NIV translates it relent, but the Hebrew is shuv and nakam. So it's it's actually that, that <laughs> God will turn it, yeah. and repent. And same word again. This, exactly, exactly the same word. And what does God do? God relents. God turns. Mm-hmm. He turns and he changes his mind. 
So you get this gorgeous idea. And uh, my little reflection on Jonah was, I I talked about the God who changed his mind. The king changed his mind. The people changed their mind. God changed his mind. The only person not changing his mind in the book of Jonah is Jonah. But but you get, but but there is, there is, although it's a sideways move, there is a parallel here. There is this understanding that actually, even though Peter is speaking to the people of God, they must shove. They must turn. They must repent. Nacham. They 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 must not just change their direction, but change their behavior towards God. Mm-hmm. And Peter is saying through Joel, if you will do that, then God, what you mm-hmm. see before you, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because he's the God doing the calling. He's yeah. he's calling out of Zion. He's calling out of Jerusalem. He's calling the people. And in the same way that that language is used in a Gentile context in Jonah, Joel picks up exactly the same language within the context mm-hmm. of God's own people. And I think it is hard not to see that language in, in mm-hmm. Peter's sermon, this idea of turn, repent. And if you turn and repent, God, the God who is calling you, will do something powerful among you because this is for all of you. <laughs> I mean, let's let's keep chasing the, the rabbit hole. I also love that you brought us to Jonah and I so want us to do a Jonah series for two <laughs> texts at some point as as well. But but yeah. um you know, I, let me make a confession. I don't even know if this is a good confession, and I really—I mean, please hear this in the in the uh, in the sense that I mean it. I I, I know that we, there can be different views on this, but I taught a sermon once on Jeremiah, where in Jeremiah the word shuv is mm. very important. This idea, Massive. and at one point he has this this idea of shuv shavot, returning. You will re, you will turn. And I made a throwaway comment in a sermon once when I was teaching on this that I said, "You see all these." people out there looking for sort of wacky ideas for tattoos. And I said, if you want a good tattoo, what about Shuv Shavot? Right? Yeah. And somebody went and did it. <laughs> it turned up a few weeks later and somebody said to me, I loved your sermon so much. I now have this tattoo. <laughs> and so, but, but notice what happens in Jeremiah, which I think is beautiful, is Jeremiah is instructed to go buy a field in occupied territory. Yeah. And, and why do you buy a field in a place that's not safe to live? But it's a symbol of God saying, we will return here. And, return. and so this whole narrative of scripture is pushed towards this idea of shuv. Of returning, we will return, and and I can't help then but say, if I was to do a a, a pop quiz for our listeners and say, think of a famous parable of Jesus, I think it's fifty fifty that you're going to say the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son, and 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 I think maybe even more would tweak towards the Prodigal Son. And what is the story of the Prodigal Son? It's a story yeah. about returning, right? Yeah. So so this idea of returning is you, you we may have stumbled across one of the core themes of mm. the whole Bible in Absolutely. in this sort of setting. And so so Peter quoting Joel, a, a text about returning. Notice, what does God say? The locusts have taken everything from you. But in, in Joel chapter two, he says, but I will return to you. <laughs> mm. I will restore to you what the, what the locusts have eaten. Like this is this is the story of scripture now we're, we're in into, isn't oh. it? About, about we will return to God and God will return to us. And 
I don't know, it got, it, it's just gorgeous, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is. And the, and the fact that Peter is linking <clears throat> this dynamic restorative process to the outpouring of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, so this is important for Israel. This is this is not just important now for this new church. This is this is an mm. important marker for Israel that that actually Peter is saying Joel when he spoke all of those years ago was talking about this. Mm-hmm. This is what he was talking about. He, he he wasn't talking about just getting your land back. He wasn't just talking about yeah. about driving out the Gentiles. He was talking about this. So mm-hmm. this is a huge moment in terms of an understanding of a prophetic scripture that would have been much loved with the idea of God restoring the fortunes of the people back again. And we have already seen in our previous podcast, Jesus, can I say this carefully, reinterpret or interpret through the lens of Messiah, Isaiah 61, a great passage Mm. about returning and restoration. And he now brings an interpretation which isn't necessarily liked, but one which is uh, inclusive and dynamic. Here's Peter, can I suggest, as the the Spirit is outpoured on Jesus, he transforms the reading of Isaiah 61. Here's now Peter, as the Spirit is outpoured on him, he transforms the reading of Joel 2. And you're Mm -hmm. getting two dynamic passages that the pilgrims of Shuvaot would have absolutely understood in a certain way being mm-hmm. reinterpreted they're being yeah. connected this is that peter says this is that and i i can't i, I know I've, I've repeated that literalism over and over again but it is such a dynamic state because peter is trying to make sure you do not miss this this is not like that this is that and in the same way that jesus transforms the reading of isaiah 61 and other magnificent isianic passages get transformed through the lens of the resurrected jesus So now Joel 2 is getting transformed by this event in Pentecost, connecting the restoration of God's people Mm -hmm. through the power of the Spirit. So it's just, so it's a much bigger event. Mm -hmm. Modern modern Christians, modern Pentecostals can just see this. Oh, this is like, this is just explaining the baptism in the Holy Spirit, right? And on Mm -hmm. one level, of course it is, but another level, this is part of a massive eschatological conversation. This is part of something absolutely huge for the purposes of God and the people of God. And God Mm -hmm. wants to call his people, Israel, into this restorative process Mm -hmm. and allow them to experience a turning back. There's a beautiful moment in Joel where, well, there's an ugly moment in Joel at the start where he talks about the different levels of locusts that have brought destruction. The great locust came, and then the young locust came, and then the other locusts came, and then the swarm of locusts, the swarming locusts came. And then Joel 2.25, I, I love how it all gets inverted, right? In the NIV, it says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And then it lists them, mm-hmm. the great locust, the young locust, the other locust, the locust swarm. But but what I, I notice, and I love this, is that the, the text, I will repay you, the word that we translate repay, the, the, the Hebrew is, and I will shalom you. I will, I will make it complete. Or we often know the word of peace, but wholeness. So notice, again, this really speaks to the point that you were making just then. This is not just Peter saying, oh, I think this has something to do with the Holy Spirit, therefore I'll quote this text. I think what Peter's doing here is saying, what we've just seen, is part of God's restoration of the world. Mm. So I'm now going to jump to a text 
in one sense, because it says I'll pour out my spirit, but because that text is part of a bigger narrative about how God is is bringing wholeness back to everything. The brokenness of Eden is being put back together. Mm -hmm. And what you've just seen here in this speaking of tongues is evidence that God is doing that. And I think it's a phenomenal message. Little thing I want to mention as well, John, quickly, because I think it's actually quite significant, is notice in verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And then in verse 18, even upon my slaves, both men and women. Now, quick point, a lot of modern translations are doing this thing right now, where whenever the word Adelphoi, which which quite literally means brothers, which is super common in the New Testament, it's translated as brothers and sisters, right? Mm. And I actually agree with that because I think it means mm. family and community. Mm. But, but there is a tendency within the New Testament to be, and I think it's a product of its time at that level, that to just address a crowd of people as brothers. It's, it's, yes. it, we would say now it is a little bit sexist, right? So the, the translators are right, I think, to translate as brothers and sisters because that is ultimately what's being said. It interests me that when you come to this text in Joel, the way Peter quotes it and the way it's represented in Joel itself, that when you see sons and daughters here and men and women here, this is not a translator doing this. This is the explicit language of Joel. At the very core of God's restorative prophecy, it isn't sexist, right? It absolutely identifies, yep, all of us, right? Mm. And, And I just think there's something really powerful about that. It's, let me say it like this. So often you hear people saying, oh, the church's current thing about the equality of men and women is just a modern fascination to try and be in touch with modern culture. And here we are reading a thousands of year old Hebrew prophetic text wherein the word of the Lord is sons and daughters, male and female. And I I just don't want to miss that because I think that's really important. That's totally. And and of course, if our... Our listeners have been following us at all in terms of the the conversation around Jesus. It's an unmissable trajectory. I mean, it's just so if if you are following the Jesus of the Gospels and then you hear this explicit prophecy from Joel that you shouldn't be shocked. You shouldn't. This this feels this sounds like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, the Holy Spirit is coming on sons and daughters. Of course, the Holy Spirit is coming on male and female servants or a literal translation might be slaves, but the slaves yeah. of the Lord. The the the, the idea of the this sort of the avodim of of Yahweh. So mm-hmm. so we are we are we are. Uh, there's no exemption here. This is mm-hmm. a completely inclusive. And of course, isn't that part of the restorative conversation? Mm-hmm. Because part of the thing that got broken in Eden was the way male and female fractured. And in fact, someone quoted this to me recently. Well, doesn't the Bible say that men will rule over women? And I had to point out to them, yeah, but that's not a normative command. That's a direct result of the brokenness of sin. God says, here's what's going to happen. As a result of sin, weeds will come. As a result of sin, pain in childbirth. As a result of sin, men will rule over women. But if you look at pre-fall Eden, none of that idea was resident. There's no headship mm. or there's no inferior, superior. There's partnership. There's together. There's there's side-by-sideness in all of this. Mm-hmm. When sin comes, that side-by-sideness of male and female gets completely fractured. And isn't it interesting? The first thing that the man and the woman do is run, not only run from the presence of God, but cover up. Please forgive me, listeners, but cover up their genitalia. They literally make aprons for themselves. They they cover up 
their maleness and their femaleness, their distinctiveness. When actually God always intended for that distinctiveness to not only be seen and understood and appreciated, but to be celebrated and, as it were, enjoyed in the context of partnership Mm -hmm. and togetherness. And of course, sin fractured that. In the outpouring of the Spirit, you have a massive link to this idea that not only is the Holy Spirit coming to empower believers to go and reach the world, but the Holy Spirit is coming to restore something of the brokenness of sin that has fractured Mm. society and fractured humanity. And one of the primary ways that's been fractured is with male and female. And isn't it isn't it incredible that that is a repeated idea? It's not. It's it's twice you get the idea of maleness and femaleness experiencing mm-hmm. the power of the spirit in this prophecy, and that cannot be a coincidence. I think that is a definite restorative conversation that, that the Holy Spirit wants to drive forward. That's why I I, I like the reference in Joel two twenty five, just prior to Peter's quotation. I will shalom you. The yeah. years the locusts have eaten. So, so shalom is is the opposite of brokenness. I think this prophetic vision is always that all the brokenness of Eden gets restored. All mm. of the brokenness of Eden is put back together again. Mm. So, I love exactly what you're saying there because that's that's what resonates in me. That one of the brokennesses of Eden is the brokenness between male and female. That too will find shalom, and it gets mm. explicitly name checked in that's in right. Peter's in in Peter's quote. And I think it, it saddens me then how often the biblical reference to look how broken it is, men now rule over women. And and we take that as a directive for what the church should look like, mm. and not realizing we've just taken an effect of sin and said, this is what we'll now try and defend. I mean, and, and actually that, as we jump into Acts, you will realize how often Acts is teaching us to beware of that exact problem of defending what you think is good, but is actually not. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Goodness, what a text, John. Oh, it's <laughs> amazing. And, and, and we only got to his first to not quote. We, we haven't got to the <laughs> others yet, so we're going to have to roll that over to another podcast. Our our, our, our listeners are going to go, we're, we're going to be like the next 20 years in the book of Acts, the way this is going. So there we are. Incredible. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with either of us about something we said, you can reach out to us on podcast at twotexts.com or by liking and following the Two Texts podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you really did enjoy the episode, then we'd love it if you left a review or a comment where you're listening from. And if you really enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? Don't forget that you can listen to all of our podcasts from this season and others at www.2text.com. But that is it for now. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.